lovely spring day. I come from Norway. We had minus 12 and minus 15 uh, for the last few weeks. We have an old house where uh, the ceiling is high, so to, to heat it is almost impossible. So I carry sacks of wood from the cellar up on the fourth floor uh, so every, every second day. So this is the exercise. Don't need to go to a, a studio. Uh, I've been here before uh, several times. I was uh, at the Changing Character Award program uh, some, <coughs> some years ago where I started uh, uh, on, on a book that will be published in May by Palgrave called Hard Power in Hard Times rather nifty title, I think. Uh, can Europe act strategically? So I have this <coughs> keen interest in uh, sort of rational <coughs> policy making. Is it possible uh, for governments in this uh, <coughs> sort of very confused age to act strategically? So that's a pet interest of mine. I worked, as you noticed uh, from the introduction, on uh, various European issues. My first job was with the Ministry of Oil and Energy, which is uh, an important one in Norway. So I did research on the non-existent EU energy policy to, for my doctorate, as I was getting more and more interested in the EU, not so much in energy. So there's a tip for you if you haven't finished your doctorate. Find the topic uh, which interests you and twist it so that you can get a PhD out of it. And then uh, European politics uh, with... Uh, activity in politics as deputy foreign minister. Uh, although the, the little presentation you had up here was a sort of bizarre Belarus, Holy See, uh, etc. sort of uh, states, uh, states, states in the international system that are quite, uh, quite uh, abnormal, so to speak, both of them. Uh, I would like to uh, present to you my thinking about defense cooperation integration, uh, what are the driving forces, what is happening in Europe uh, today. Uh, because there are some paradoxes here. On the one hand, there is Russia prodding, testing, uh, being uh, sort of uh, this speech by Putin last week was uh, like seeing Dr. Strangelove again, uh, <laughs> sort of really odd for being uh, 2018 in rather peaceful Europe for having had having been peaceful for so long. So this is the sort of the situation of hard power being on display: China, Russia, North Korea. Uh, something we haven't been used to for a long time in Europe, 1990 until let's say 2010, 15, uh, 2010s this long 20 years of uh, almost unprecedented peace, one has this, this recurrence of realpolitik and the use of military force in a traditional way of uh, enhancing state interests, of, uh, of, uh, which, which calls for deterrence, maybe coercion, certainly not appeasement, the classical strategic choices. So this is happening uh, in and around Europe. Russia is neighbor, Norway's neighbor, Finland's neighbor, uh, Britain's neighbor, so to speak. Uh, this is happening in Europe while Europeans seem to be, in a way, in another completely mi different mindset. This is a puzzle, this is a paradox, this is highly interesting. Uh, my colleague and friend Christopher Coker writes about this as a cultural problem. So this is, a, he says, that the, the real problem is cultural. 
it is not the lack of money or the lack of ability to think strategically. It is something that has happened to the European uh, citizen and politician over these last 20 years, having to do with globalization, perhaps European integration. So hard power with uh, the military, use of military force in the traditional way, state by state, state versus state, seems to be unknown territory. So this is the background to my analysis and, uh, and what comes subsequently. Uh, so there is a need to do something about defense, so to speak, in Europe. Uh, perspective here is, is European. Um, because there are some iron laws of economics at work in the defense sector, and you're all familiar with them, I presume, particularly those who are officers in the audience, uh, there is always, not surprisingly, a lack of money for defense. This is an age-old, centuries-old problem, but it is compounded today by the, uh, the cost of this new technology, uh, technology that is so costly that uh, a state's medium-sized state cannot afford to keep up its capabilities. Let's say we have about 30, 35 capabilities for land, sea, and, and, and air, plus space, plus uh, cyber space. Uh, there isn't the, uh, or the, the cost of renewing the force, so to speak, of keeping up in the competition uh, is much higher than in the civilian sector. So there is a cost problem that hits everybody. It's every country, but it hits the smaller countries first. And the critical mass problem is where you see it. If you can't afford more than two submarines, you probably should have none. So this, as you're familiar with, this leads to a change of the inventory. Denmark has uh, scrapped having submarines altogether, saving on that, yet... Norway couldn't do that, so we are buying new ones now from Germany, ThyssenKorp. But this is a general sort of iron law of, uh, of defense economics. Uh, one cannot afford uh, the number of items that one needs, and therefore countries have to uh, work together in, new, in a new way, in a way. It's a new, there's a new need for defense integration. Then there is the political mindset, liberal democracies are not set up to spend on defense. There are few NGOs, pressure groups that say we must have more for defense. Few demonstrators outside parliaments calling for more defense spending. Uh, and uh, politicians are uh, basically uninterested in this field because it isn't something you get re-elected by, it's not something popular, it's something very unpleasant. It's an unpleasant topic, it's frightening, it is uh, not something where you see results. It is best, defense is best when not used, of course. So it is the age of problem that kings had, they could raise taxes, dictators can spend, as Russia can, as uh, China can, uh, but liberal democracies have great difficulty justifying spending on defense. And we see that in the empirical uh, reality of things by the debate about the 2% GDP defense <coughs> spending, where President Trump has intensified the demand 
put on the Europeans, and the Europeans themselves have agreed on this 2%. It's not an American imposition directly. It is uh, European <coughs> governments at Cardiff uh, agreed to, uh, to reach 2% by 2024. Uh, and this goal is being abandoned almost as we speak. Uh, the Germans are not going to go, go towards 2% anyway. Uh, the SPD Social Democrats, both Steinmeier uh, and, uh, and uh, uh, Schulz, uh, and now Gabriel, the Foreign Minister, they state this publicly that uh, the Social Democrats will not go for 2%, which is a remarkable thing for a governing party in uh, a, center, a really important European country to, to state this publicly. Most others don't state it. They say we will, in time, we will reach 2%. Uh, the Norwegian government has just uh, changed the text. Before the election, it was 2% quickly, and certainly by 2024, now it is uh, sometime in the future. The 2024 has been taken out of the government declaration. And this is a country with Russia as a neighbor, with a, a definite need for a strong NATO. So there is something here that uh, maybe can be explained by the competition for funds, uh, but um, my, my, I shouldn't give you the conclusion, but uh, uh, my thinking about this is that it must be uh, much more cultural or mindset-oriented than than uh, rational, because uh, one can say there are the external risks, if not threats. Uh, there is the need for more money because of the proc procurement cost, and there is the sovereignty consideration uh, that every government must, uh, must discuss and think about. How much do you want to integrate with other countries if you want to remain a sovereign country? And this is a country, this is a debate that isn't very explicit. I don't think it really exists. Now let's look at what we have uh, at presently in Europe. Uh, and uh, this is, we could say, at least most of this on this slide is bottom up. It is uh, driven by the need for, 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 for um, saving money. Uh, Nordefco is the Nordic Defense Corporation scheme, it is uh, definitely intended to save money among the uh, Norway, Finland, Denmark and, and, and Sweden. Um, Denmark joined also this, but they fear that it could be something the Americans wouldn't like, so they weren't sure in the beginning. But this is a, a typical example of uh, cooperation to, to save money on exercises, on training, on maybe buying having the same equipment to some extent. And of course, the boards are uh, getting more into this now. So this, this makes sense, and it is vi vitally important to find ways of cooperating to save money, uh, and maybe to exercise and train and so on. Uh, the um, Swedes have, uh, have downsized their army and their general military apparatus tremendously. I mean, there's basically very little left, and they've just reintroduced conscription after having abandoned it uh, two, three years ago. So Sweden is sort of trying to turn the ship quickly because of Russia. 
Uh, Finland has a, a cheap defense model based on, sometimes we say they have a new bicycle, new bicycles for the army once, once in a while. But the Finns are very good uh, fighters, they believe in a traditional <coughs> mobilization <coughs> concept and believe uh, that this is what deters Russia with a certain winter war experience. Uh, the Bolts are eager to cooperators, but Nordefco will of course never go beyond a certain sort of low level of cooperation because of the NATO membership of some of, of the countries. So this is, uh, this is not a strategic type of defense cooperation. The same goes for EU initiatives, uh, and I'll say more about the EU later. Uh, recent initiatives that have been presented with much fanfare in Brussels and beyond Brussels, as I call sometimes an EU defense union, uh, and the EU now has a strategy, uh, the EU has a common defense solidarity clause already in the Lisbon Treaty, but the reality is that this is also to save money bottom up, uh, although there, and there is now fresh sort of joint, uh, joint funding money for, for this European Defence Fund. Uh, and I'll say, say, say more about it, PESCO, 26 EU countries. So it's bottom up, where could we do something more rationally, so to speak. Uh, Germany, uh, which is the richest country in Europe, has one of the lowest defence spending uh, percentages, 1.3 I think it is, or even less. Uh, Germany has, uh, has decided to be a framework nation in NATO to get others to cooperate uh, in the military, industrial, uh, in a way, uh, integration schemes. Framework nation, this is also planning and processing and, and uh, trying to reach uh, rational cooperation, so to speak, which is important, but it's also the bottom-up, it's a sort of politics as usual. Now we need to save, now we need to cooperate. French-British cooperation has elements of this, but it is also a strategic type of cooperation. Now, Russia, uh, now I want to try to probe how, what are the drivers here, what, what's happening beyond this. This is a book, uh, I was a co-editor of this last year, uh, on and the long title is due to the algorithms, ladies and gentlemen. This is how the editors these days, the publishing houses, they want titles uh, where if you write Ukraine, probably not beyond, Ukraine, Russia, strategy, security, Europe, either of these terms you get the title off on the screen <laughs> so, that, so they can sell more. And this goes in hand in hand with the abandonment of royalties, which is what they do these days. And I shouldn't say this, perhaps, but uh, one of the contributors to this book is Igor Sutyagin from Rusi, who was uh, one of the spies, alleged spies, swapped in 2010, along with this unfortunate uh, colonel of yesterday. So when I saw the news, I thought, oh my god, I hope the FSB is not too interested in our book. <laughs> because uh, Sutyagin got in there because we needed somebody who knew Russian strategy and uh, I didn't have any connections uh, in that direction, so it was just a piece of advice from somebody, <laughs> another British scholar. So, um, so this is, uh, maybe it's a selling point for Paul Grave. We shall see. 
we should then expect if strategy is of any interest to European politicians, we should expect there to be a major effect from Russia's activities since Crimea. Uh, and what we see is that there is an effect in Northern Europe, but not in the South, not in Southern Europe. France's interests are not in uh, any kind of confrontation with Russia, but in uh, as much partnership as possible, uh, which is a historical interest, of course, and has worked well for France in the past. France is a, a, a very able strategic actor. I'll get to say more about France later. Uh, but in the south of Europe, its strategic interests are definitely not in the north, not in confronting or deterring Russia for that matter, but in the south. Uh, but we see Russia's, uh, you might say, forward-leaning activities that are really uh, political, um, sort of very tough political rhetoric combined with military probing. For instance, when Finland joined the host nation support scheme of NATO in 2015 or 16, <coughs> can't remember the date, uh, there was a strong Russian reaction verbally, and then for six days thereafter, every second day, there was a violation of Finnish airspace. So this is the political signaling of uh, flying, of uh, uh, airspace violations, so on. Uh, and we know that Britain plays now the key role in uh, sort of deterring Russia in, uh, in, in developing strategy on what to do. And we see the Northern Group, which is a diplomatic, started uh, underlying Fox, a di diplomatic uh, suggestion to get countries, like-minded countries together. The Northern Group now has about every country in Northern Europe as members, uh, also Swedes and Finns, and uh, the much more interesting military joint expeditionary force uh, led by Britain now also has Swedes and Finns as, as contributing uh, members. And this <coughs> gives, of course, these countries a certain uh, security, I wouldn't say guarantee, but it's, it's a way who trains together can fight together, etc. So this uh, is very interesting, all this uh, defense integration, so to speak, that is not primarily happening because of economic motives, but strategic common interest. Uh, and um, uh, this is indeed uh, sort of a major theme of a, of a book that Rob and I will publish later this year on uh, coalitions, partnerships as a, as a mode of cooperation that the multilateral organizations themselves, EU, NATO, UN for that matter, but you and the UN is basically the mandate provider, the enabler of legitimacy. But in NATO we see that NATO, the large 29 coalition of states, a military alliance bound by Article 5, which is a very strong bond, it's a very strong obligation, uh, these 29 states are nonetheless extremely diverse in terms of security uh, assessment interests, strategic interests, and so on. So NATO has for some time clearly become uh, a platform for coalitions, platform for coalitions of like-minded <coughs> states. 
where the northern group, or rather Jeff, is the foremost example today. Uh, and the EU also, 20, 28 member states, uh, is also extremely diversified and it's well known that one has these different memberships, Schengen, uh, PESCO now, uh, CFSP, uh, the uh, Euro. The EU is like a sort of landscape of circles that overlap to some extent, <clears throat> although there is something that they all participate in, like Article 5 in NATO, namely the internal market. As you Brits now experience how sacrosanct the internal market is as a set of ideas and rules. So uh, I would suggest that we should think about and analyze defense, what happens in terms of countries' uh, cooperation and integration with each other, uh, either as the bottom-up sort of a pragmatic cost-based uh, activity uh, or and or uh, as something else, as something strategic, where you start by saying, do we have common strategic interests? Um, then we have a basis for <coughs> serious military cooperation in terms of war fighting. So these are the risk-willing and able, the risk, so, so the willing and able category of states, where you have uh, an ability militarily, you have a culture of risk willingness, of mi a military culture, strategic culture, and you have the, uh, uh, the common interests that motivate such integration <coughs> cooperation. And these two modes of cooperation do not necessarily overlap at all. Um, the bottom-up econ economically motivated one is much less serious, much less uh, important. So this is the book we, we've just finished, the manuscript. The last chapter will be in next week. Uh, and uh, it has this provisional title, Britons, and it should be spelled properly, I guess, so that we publish it. Uh, and it has coalitions and partnerships. And we found this very interesting because uh, clearly in uh, the role of, of these set organizations that are really <coughs> Uh, the result after World War II, when all these international organizations were familiar with EU, NATO, European Council of Europe, OECD, uh, later OSCE, uh, UN, whole UN family, all these organizations are designed largely by the Americans or the West uh, after World War II, and multilateral diplomacy becomes sort of a, a, a a place where there is predictability, where one follows rules, where process matters more than results. And now we are in a situation where this is no longer true. There is much more emphasis on uh, what's in it for me, what do you bring to the table, uh, do we have common interests, shall we use the EU format, shall we use the NATO platform, so to speak, to launch our cooperation, to do what we want to do. And Trump's diplomacy, uh, America, the Americans have always been much more uh, upfront about this, of course. What do you bring to the table? I, there's a story from NATO where my uh, a friend who was NATO ambassador, Kai Ada, tells the story. He was sitting between the American and British ambassadors at an NAC meeting. 
and the Belgian ambassador took the floor constantly pronouncing on every other every issue. He was Belgium had this and that intervention. And then the American leans uh, in front of the Norwegian talking to the Brit and he says, so what do they contribute? That is the Belgians. So in a way it's it's more much more uh, now with Trump it's much more what you know what's in it for you and what's in it for me and let's cooperate. Uh, but I think in security and defense, there's always been this element of if you're not up to it, uh, you, you're not, we don't need you. Maybe you're flagged, but that's all. So uh, what we do in this book is to have expert <coughs> authors uh, write, a Frenchman writing on how the French think about the British nowadays, the French-British cooperation. Um, uh, an American writing about the special relationship and Rob writing about special about Britain as such. Uh, and we look then at the partnerships and the uh, Northern Group Coalition. And we, I think we find in these chapters that the willing and able, uh, that this is becoming much more important, that those affected by Russian revisionism uh, get together and find a, a way of working on this together. And of course, uh, the Jeff will, as the one sort of tactical level chapter in the book will show, written by two uh, um, marine officers, uh, they show that uh, there is a strategic advantage possibly to having this military integration also, that you get, you get more room for maneuver. But the point is to really look in detail at uh, the uh, sort of the growing importance of partnerships, coalitions, uh, something that isn't new in NATO, but it's more pronounced now, uh, and how this uh, doesn't really affect or isn't really affected by Brexit, uh, because Brexit, um, how, however, whatever one says about Brexit. Uh, politically, it remains a fact that the EU needs Britain in security and defense uh, more so than vice versa. So there are sort of this is a call for uh, sort of being uh, honest about facts uh, in this relationship. Now this is the hard power in hard times, uh, gloomy, gloomy picture. I think these are these are I don't know what they call in English to stop tanks from invading. Must be uh, some somewhere in in mid in middle Europa, probably. This is uh, coming out in May, and this is related to the general topic here because in in my book on hard power, I try to uh, well, I I study, I try to study where I study uh, this factor of military strategic culture in actors in European actors. Uh, who are the willing and able? Uh, I edited a, pr a previous book on NATO where we studied uh, NATO's willing and able. Uh, who are they in Europe, the European members? And we said, well, the concluding, we said it's Britain, it's France, it's Poland, the Netherlands, Denmark, and Norway. I don't know whether there are other, others present here who would contest that, but that was uh, the, the general conclusion. These are the countries that are fighting together often in, in uh, for instance, Libya, we had Britain, France, 
Denmark, Norway, very, very active uh, with their air forces to such an extent that uh, Robert Gates was very critical of Poland for not having contributed. And Poland uh, sort of made a mistake of not contributing because uh, they didn't think the Americans would be, uh, would have a major role in that operation. It would be led by the French as it looked in the beginning. Now that wasn't the case because leading from behind what the Americans called it was very much an indispensable activity. But you know very, very well that these are countries that are recurring in NATO operations uh, and uh, also operations that are not NATO operations. Iraq, for instance, uh, had Denmark being very active. Norway didn't show up because of domestic political disagreement in the government, but would normally have been there. Enduring freedom, Afghanistan, 2001, uh, most of these countries had special forces going uh, and so on. So there is a, a, a rather big literature on strategic military culture uh, that one can draw on to sort of ascertain whether this is true or not, these conclusions. Uh, and it's very clear that Germany lacks this kind of culture. One could say Germany had too much of it in two world wars, and now it is still under sort of this uh, pacifism in, in domestic politics. Uh, although there are changes in Germany's uh, um, sort of movement in this direction of being able to uh, lead militarily, we are far from that situation. One is far from, from a political, should one say, willingness, maturity to do so. And uh, this, is, this illustrates the importance of this factor. I think this is the single most important factor is the domestic politics of these countries in terms of being willing to take risk, uh, have losses, uh, use military force as a deterrent, maybe also as a co coercive tool of state. And this is the Clausewitz sort of dictum that one, one achieves political ends through the use of force in these ways. Usually uh, deterrence is the most uh, sort of uh, useful and the most desirable way of using military force. But this is a whole tradition of statecraft that is rather unknown in many countries today in Europe, uh, but exists, that persists, I should say, in some. Uh, and uh, uh, when countries get together in PESCO or whatever format to save money, this is a, an entirely different matter, really. One will not move from PESCO to defense union. <coughs> so what we find and what I find is that uh, the sort of old-fashioned strategic partnerships uh, that the logic of external threat and risk moves you to uh, act together uh, and uh, like-minded countries act together, uh, that remains, of course, it's it's a fact of life, it's how it works in the international system. And therefore, uh, there's a, a very sort of a misplaced emphasis on this current EU defense union policy, uh, sort of that is uh, presented as if the EU uh, is replacing NATO or competing with NATO, because there simply isn't the substance behind, there isn't any substance behind it.
it is very much uh, sort of just wishful thinking, I, I believe. And this has implications for how things will go in the future, in the larger picture of transatlantic relations. There is, in a way, an axis, Washington, London, Poland, Norway, the northern countries, those that are in the willing and able category. Uh, we like to think, from Norway's side, we like to think we have an alliance in the alliance, a special relationship. You have, at least you like to think very much that you have a very special relationship, and you do compared to everybody else. And there's nothing to suggest that that will be diminished. I think for the Americans it is sort of what you bring to the table. How useful are you? Do we have common interests? Uh, what are, how can we uh, sort of the intelligence, uh, close, very close intelligence relationship that you have with Washington, that we have with Washington. Uh, in that sense, we say Norway is NATO in the north, meaning Norway provides the U.S. with uh, exceptional intelligence on Russia in the north. So it is these facts that matter, and they have to do with trust between governments uh, and services, uh, and that is something entirely different from an open-ended political process of 28 or 29 countries. Uh, so depending on what uh, sort of which needs we will have in security and defense in the time ahead. Um, this will become, I think, the, this DC, London, uh, Northern Europe dimension will become increasingly important. Uh, and one could say Sweden and Finland trying to insert themselves as much as they ever can in Washington, London, and with us in Norway, because we're in NATO, testifies to this. because. If Sweden and Finland believed in the Lisbon Treaty, they should, you know, when you read this article 42.6 or 42.7, I keep forgetting which, what the, 42.7, I think. If you read the text, it is much more obliging, it's much more serious, it's much more sort of uh, clear than Article 5 in NATO. It actually says that all EU countries will assist each other militarily if one is threatened. Uh, so it's, it, it, it sort of, it's a wonderful text, uh, but the text has no substantial sort of backing by anyone. And France invoked that text uh, <coughs> after Friday, Friday the 13th, 2015, when, uh, when there was the terror attack. Uh, at Bataclan, France invoked that to Germany and other EU uh, members, saying, now we need your solidarity, what are you going to sort of support us with? And the Germans were quite taken aback by this. So, um, uh, clearly, uh, what is stated, what's even written into a treaty, doesn't really matter very much. Uh, unless there is this culture of saying, yes, this, subs this is substantially uh, important to us and we will honor these commitments. And I'm reminded of that very much when I read EU documents on uh, the defense union, on how the, the EU now has a strategy 
there's a, a new a global strategy for the EU that was adopted in June 2016. You should read that because it says absolutely nothing strategic. There's no strategy at all in that text. It's very much like a pep talk to, uh, to uh, journalists. The EU will be a world leader in this. The EU will do that. Um, will promote these values. It's a sort of litany of good intentions, but there is no strategic interaction with anybody. There is no specification of which military needs uh, does the EU then have? How will it prioritize uh, its strategic interests? Uh, and the same with all the talk about the defense union. Uh, what does that require, a defense union? How do you specify the army needs for the defense union? What will be the doctrines and so on? The EU, two EU strategy, strategy documents, they have a span of 13 years between them. The one was, first was in 2003 called the EU strategy. It was 16 pages of very big print in a way, very airy documents, so to speak, in that sense also. And that was spurred by 2001 and Manhattan. So it looked in the risk and threat assessment like the American uh, security strategy at the time. Uh, and then 13 years passes, uh, pass and you get a new global strategy. So this is a sort of a, uh, the only really important question about the EU's security and defense ambition, I think, is the, uh, ro the role of France. Will France, in a way, in all, what will France uh, prefer, uh, prefer what, are Fran what is the French thinking? And uh, to provide you with an answer to that, uh, I looked at the Revue Stratégique uh, de la Défense from November 2017. It's uh, maybe in English now on their webpage. It's a very, very, I would say it's a beautiful document. I mean, it's beautiful in the logical sense of how it is structured because it, is, it says these, these are the requirements of sovereignty for us. France is sovereign to the extent that it doesn't need anybody else, which is an interesting way of putting it. We, are, we have the, uh, the nuclear deterrent, uh, therefore we are able to be sovereign. We are not depending on anybody. So this is very different from a German a statement which would probably be something like, we are integrated in the EU, therefore we are sovereign. Therefore we have sort of this, we couldn't be anything outside of the multilateral setting. Now this document uh, is not very different from the, uh, from the uh, Libre Blanc from 13, 2013, which is uh, familiar to you probably. So this is a shorter piece. Uh, but m most important I think is that it says what, ma what matters to us is the risk-willing, relevant military partners, the willing and able category. We can only cooperate with countries that are able to fight professionally, take risk, take losses, and with whom we, with which we share interests, of course. So it has a long part on Britain's importance and the U.S. importance. And uh, then it says about the EU that uh, the EU should also have autonomous military ca capability. That is, of course, not 
defined really by anybody, but uh, thinking in France from De Gaulle onwards has always been that Europe should be a, a pole in the multipolar system, being able to deter, coerce militarily as well as economically. So there is a, I think there's a continuity in this way of thinking, but uh, France was rep reportedly very dismayed that this PESCO, which was supposed to get more uh, money out of the spending, make it more rational, more R&D that uh, would do away with all these various weapon systems of Europe, um, that uh, 26 countries signed up to that, because the moment you have such a large group, it is a slow kind of process. Uh, so uh, I would say this Revue Stratégique shows the, the difference between the sort of bottom-up money saving and the strategic cooperation. And in this document there's a very, very uh, interesting uh, figure on page 69 which details what kind of cooperation can France enter into with countries where it has no uh, sort of alliance uh, obligations. What, are the, what does sovereignty require? Which is the key question, of course, for every country. What does sovereignty require in terms of how far you can go uh, in, uh, in various types of cooperation integration? And that is the sort of famous elephant, infamous elephant in the room, the debate that few politicians, I think, are able to or willing to. They're neither able nor willing to, to have that debate. It's a very difficult debate, of course, uh, because one cannot, again, as I started by saying, one cannot afford what one should afford in order to have traditional sovereignty anymore. And here in Britain you have a, a torturous debate about curse, defense cuts for the time being. Uh, so, to, uh, to conclude, uh, the EU, what's really most disconcerting about the EU's um, statements, Juncker, Juncker who always talks about uh, the sort of uniqueness of the humanitarian act of the EU, that it's a soft power actor, he even stated, uh, soft power is not enough, we need military power, which is uh, sort of, uh, how will you square that with the sort of humanitarian image? of the soft power actor, the normative actor. But what's disconcerting is that the talk about these things, union, strategy, autonomous military capacity, it's so easy, it's so superficial. There's no specification. Of, it's as if those who talk about it, Mogherini, Juncker, even Tusk, do not realize the seriousness of this, what this requires. Uh, which tells us something about sort of EU policymaking. It's possible to make statements to, to this effect without serious planning for what the implications are. And that uh, is a problem because the Americans listen to this and they are quite irritated, to say the least. Mattis in Munich demanded a clarification from the EU that it wouldn't duplicate NATO in any way. Uh, and it was uh, at Munich, the Security Council conference was now in February, uh, there was so much hype about these EU plans. And of course there's a lot of anti-American 
um, sentiment among European politicians due to Trump, uh, which lends itself to sort of wishful dreaming about an alternative EU uh, defense uh, capability. Uh, and I think, uh, but I think that the key actor in all this is and remains France. It's not Germany so much because Germany doesn't really uh, think much, work much on on uh, strategy at least. It does. It has a formidable military industry, but that's something else. And to end, to conclude, uh, on the more even more disconcerting <coughs> note. Uh, all those governments that are in the unwilling and ab unable category, those uh, for whom uh, strategy makes is unnecessary, it doesn't make sense. Uh, this unpleasantness of Russia, particularly, uh, is something one can maybe just disregard. It's much better to be in denial than to have to think seriously about deterrence, about defense, national defense, uh, about uh, <coughs> spending on defense. Um, and most NATO member states are in this category. They are not very interested in this. It's nice to have Article 5, but we don't have to think much about it. And of course, the fact of modern changing character of war today is, of course, that Article 5 is the least likely to happen to you. Uh, what's likely is a hybrid, it is strategic attack, a testing, it is whatever Clausewitz could have taught us about how to use military force uh, without too much risk of escalation to Article 5, and then achieve your results. Uh, and there are some very interesting uh, articles analyzing the enhanced forward presence in the Baltics along these lines, saying that uh, um, Russia could uh, easily maybe get a situation of uh, conflict on the ground, sort of conflict among civilians in the Baltic states imply, uh, involving some NATO personnel. Uh, that, could, that, that would be possible sort of to, to um, uh, have this kind of a subversive uh, performance. Uh, Russia could also uh, test Article 5 by uh, a quick in and out, and would then the 29 NATO members get together in Brussels and declare Article 5? The answer, of course, is no. When Ukraine happened, or well, Crimea happened, there was great confusion in the NSC. And we think, in similar terms, what about Svalbard or Spitsbergen uh, could have Barnsburg, where there are 800 Russian workers. Maybe they needed a little protection uh, for some days by Russian soldiers in this uh, uh, non-militant, demilitarized uh, archipelago. What would happen in Brussels then? Would there be sort of an instant Article 5 declaration? No, no. So. If one wanted to sort of test uh, this Article 5 business, uh, there, are, there are legion ways of doing so. Uh, and uh, to sort of detect what happens, to be prepared to uh, act on national security is a national 
national uh, obligation. It's not something the Americans will fly in to do for you. So I think this is, there's a lot of sort of sleepwalking in Europe uh, for the time being. One hopes that all of this isn't really so serious, won't happen, uh, and so on. Because the, the, the whole idea of Article 5 is a large-scale, clear war situation, a high-end scenario. Uh, and of course, if I were an adversary uh, wanting to effect political influence in Europe, various ways, I would use all other means but that. And the Russians are very clever strategically and tactically, uh, so they undoubtedly have thought about this. Uh, so, and uh, just to remind ourselves in this article, this 2% 2% spending is an, is an empirical indicator of how uninterested European governments are. It's not the money, that is not the 2% that is the magical number, but it is it's just you solemnly declare at Wales you will reach this goal by 2024, and then, well, it doesn't really matter. And uh, we should also remember that um, looking back at Crimea, the case 2014, the two things that happened as a political reaction to Crimea to the annexation of Crimea and the uh, war fighting in, in Luhansk, Donetsk, uh, is sanctions, US, uh, the US um, made the sanctions, the US decided on the sanctions and imposed them on the EU. The EU Europeans themselves did not uh, make up the sanctions. So it is, an, uh, the policy leadership was American. The same for the deterrence of, uh, with military, <coughs> conventional military force in Europe that currently is uh, in place. It was an American decision, <laughs> belated one, but uh, an American decision to spend and to deploy, redeploy to Poland and rotate in East Central Europe. And then the Europeans came along after that decision uh, at the Warsaw summit in 2016 with these uh, three battalions in the Baltic states. So it is also disconcerting that it is US leadership again and again and again uh, for Europe, even if one resents it tremendously. <laughs> this is where there isn't the sort of, it's as if one doesn't uh, say now if we mean it, we really criticize Trump and all that. Let's uh, be serious ourselves. Thank you so much, and now we will have comments, of which there probably are many.